Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a prolific and crucial voice in the landscape of modern cinema discussion and dissection. As a writer and analyst at Vulture, she's penned pieces examining the most essential films in queer horror history, as well as explored the hundred most essential scares across the landscape of cinema itself. Recently, she lent her voice to Shudder's upcoming queer horror documentary, sharing her vast knowledge on the genre and its entanglement with those marginalized by society. A ferocious writer with an invaluable take on the pop culture landscape, her work has also appeared in such places as New York Magazine, Slate, and Wired. Please welcome to the show, writer, pop culture commentator, and film historian, Jordan Crutchiola. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. And I agree with everything you said. <laughs> well, it's all true. So true. <laughs> yeah, I, I can take a compliment. I, I thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for all the work you do. It's easy to compliment when you're doing good stuff out there. I'm excited to have you on the show today. I, I know that, you know, we have spent a, a lot of time in similar spaces and had a lot of pretty cool and serious discussions, but this is the first time we get to do it together on the air. So that's kind of fun. No, I'm very, I'm very glad we're going public with this, Michael. Yeah, taking it, taking it to the headlines. Uh, <laughs> so with that in mind, why don't we just kick the show off? I'll start the show with the same first question I ask every guest, which is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why are drawn audiences drawn to it? But why horror? Uh, my first movie memory, actually, is of Hellraiser. And I... It had to have been around when it came shortly after it came to home video, which would have made, I would have been between like three and five when I saw it. I was born in 1985. I think that came out in 1988. Um, and that is my first actual movie memory is of Frank in the attic rising from the goo and the gore as he is piecing himself together, emergent from hell to take uh, corporeal form again. And it's a funny thing when you watch scary stuff when you're little because I feel like you get, like, the shocking stuff always scares you, you know, regardless of what age you are. But things like that, I didn't know to be afraid. It was just right. cool. I just remember a feeling of being interested. What, you know, say more. Show me more of this. And then as you get older, and I think that, that kind of gets to the answer of why horror. It's so immediately compelling when you look at it just to see it because it's so in your face and it's so unsubtle and I am a person who is very direct and unsubtle in my own manner and behavior and it is it is a movie that um I've said this before and I'll say it again it's either a sludge hole uh, it's either a sledgehammer or a scalpel and either way you're gonna see the blood right. and I like that I like I like the unsubtlety of it I like the fun of it I like the fact that there's such a broad spectrum of what has always been celebrated by by the fan of it, whether it is pure trash or high art, the community that rallies around these kinds of movies will sort of show up for it regardless. And that's just the plain fun of it. But then as you get older and you learn the stuff to be afraid of, you learn the stuff to be scared of textually and subtextually, well, then there's just more than you even realized before. So you could have enjoyed something topically that suddenly you can just dig into. And it's an incredible allegory that educates you as much as it entertains you and you can either be a weekend warrior where it's just something you watch for fun or it can be something super stimulating and provides I think for me the most sort of nourishing and entertaining way to sort of study film history and sort of evolution of it in regards to sort of marginalization who gets to make what art I think the coolest way for me to do that for my own personal my own personal joy is is through horror there's there's just you keep peeling back the layers and it gets better the deeper you go 
Well, and, and some of the terms that you used while, while you were answering this question, you talked about community. And, you know, oft, oftentimes when these movies are referred to, they're referred to as cult films. And what is a cult film but a film that has a community around it? You talked about the layers. You talked about the allegory. And, I, I, you know, I think that that's one of the most powerful things about this genre is you can use the lens of the fantastic to shine a light on something that maybe the mainstream does not want to tackle head on. And uh, that's something that in your work has been very apparent. You have an interest in that. And like the, the peeling back the, the, the layers, piercing the veil, seeing what's behind the monster, seeing what's hiding in the dark. But how early on did you draw that conclusion? Or was it, I assume it started as entertainment first. And then you were like, oh, but beneath this. Maybe they're talking about this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that that really, like, I, I certainly won't purport to be some kind of, like, precocious 13-year-old who was digging into, like, what did, what did white zombie really mean? And what did those zombies represent? No, it wasn't really till college. It wasn't till college till I started doing, like, critical reading, more critical reading than I ever had before because it was necessitated by sort of, like, coursework. And I started talking to, it was as I started meeting more people who were as interested in this stuff as I was. Whereas like growing up, I, I was like horror movies more than anybody else did. And you know, you'd watch scary stuff with friends. Like I watch it and scream with my like sixth grade best friend, Justine Rhodes at her house is still one of my best memories ever, but one of my best movie memories ever. But we weren't gonna sit and have a critical conversation about like <laughs> the, there was nobody in that room to tell me, well, like, you know why Drew Barrymore's character looks the way she does in this is because Barbara Crampton wore and styled her hair like I, there wasn't anybody around me to have that expanded conversation. So it wasn't until I was getting into my adult years and you were meeting like college people and having conversations. And then it was just like, oh, wow, there's all this has been right in front of me all along. And these things I've watched over and over again and love, I can continue to watch over and over again and experience them almost anew and not realize things that I had previously seen in front of my eyes but not processed, that's amazing. And so it was like, it was like getting a, it was like getting a, a reboot of my own interest in the genre because it's like, oh wow, this can be a renewable resource for so much longer and, and more enthusiastically than I even thought because there's just so much more to dig around in than I realized. And then obviously with what I've been able to do at Vulture, I, I showed up um, I showed up here right on time as far as the way that horror has sort of crested in the public conversation. And I remember one of my overarching editors when I arrived asked, he was like, you know, do you think there's enough horror stuff that comes out all year long for you to make this kind of like an official beat? And I was, oh yes. Yeah. There, there's so much more that comes out than the sort of like three to five big studio or you know medium to big studio movies in the genre that come out every you know every year oh yeah we can definitely like dig through the record crates on this like no problem and that was you know right around when get out was coming out and that was around when there was a sort of explosion into the consciousness with the babadook and it follows and the witch and those movies that always get cited for kind of kicking the door down into this this era that we're currently in so it was good timing and a relentless desire to talk about the the forgotten films. <laughs> well, and it's true. A lot of films were forgotten because, you know, I think there's a perennial cycle that happens when you live in the world of horror and you're a creator in horror or you're a fan in horror. When you're immersed in it, it's always part of your life. Yes, yes. 
But when you are looking at it from the perspective of the mainstream, the, the mainstream media, if you will, yeah. th- there, it, it appears as though horror disappears for a while or like horror is making a comeback. How often have we seen that headline? <laughs> or, or like, you know, here's horror with depth as if this didn't all ha- has not existed since, you know, before cinema in the literary verse. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's always sort of baffling because why why now are people becoming aware that there's allegory there? I mean, in a, in a larger sense. Of course, hats off to Jordan Peele with Get Out. It's such a masterpiece. Or like the work that Jennifer Kent did in The Babadook, exposing, you know, mental illness and the stigma and, and, the, and, and what happens when you have an affliction that doesn't go away. It, I think that's all very brilliant use of genre, but then it's sort of like, okay, cool guys, welcome to the party, but like, what about... <laughs> All of these things that you missed. Yeah, there's a reason why there's a reason why people interested in these kinds of movies can say, "Oh, if you find that you like this movie with this subtextual theme, let me provide you quickly with a ten movie list dating back generations for what you also might enjoy because it is thematically the foundation for exactly what you're talking about right now. Like, there's literally a movie called like what is it called? Gat like Gaslighter? Is it Gat? Oh, uh, gas, gaslit. Yeah. Gaslit. Yeah. 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 There, there's literally a movie called Gaslit. Like the metaphor is not recent. Um, and it's, I, I, it's, I think what plays into this, regardless of like things are cyclical and sort of coming into the consciousness, I think there are multiple components here. And one of them, I think, um, without a doubt has to be the proliferation of digital viewing, uh, our ability to access cinema on demand from all around the world on so many platforms because suddenly just so much more is at our fingertips. Suddenly so many more people can see Goodnight Mommy. So many more people who maybe didn't make it to the art house theater to see The Babadook when it got here in end of 2014, well, they can queue that up on Netflix. There is more people can access these sort of fragments of conversation and sort of coalesce together on the internet where we can now join to talk about it. And we can, re- we can do the, you know, movie Twitter's favorite pastime of reevaluating something coming that came out years ago and say, actually, guys, this was good. And because there's no more monoculture and we're all just this big sort of tower of babble of microcultures, suddenly a pastiche of monoculture replacement is formed by this amalgamation of smaller interests that we all sort of shove together and celebrate as what we the thing we celebrate now instead of being like, oh, there's one movie that everybody rallies around. It's suddenly, especially if you're very online, like I feel like me and you are, it becomes like the community of the monoculture of internet. And you learn the sort of ways in which to maneuver around conversations to grab a bigger community around you and sort of pull them in in a way you couldn't before without the sort of obscurity of a GeoCities page in the early internet days. And then I think too, much as they are sort of, the most famous times in horror that I think sort of our sort of late, like mid to late millennial, maybe early Gen X generation experienced horror. Most of the people I talk to who speak about something like a get out or, or like a, a Babadook in terms of it being sort of first right. is, or, or like it sort of invented this idea of metaphor in the, in the genre. Um, there is a, a part of that conversation that always goes, well, I don't like torture porn. Right. 
and I think that the fact that that um, really brutal era so heavily defined formative years of a lot of people just getting into horror now was thinking of Saw and thinking of Eli Roth movies and then sort of writing off the genre as a whole and not really thinking of it as something that evolved because it's just horror and that sounds scary and bloody and violent. And then the last big wave before, the last very populist wave of super violence before that was the slasher boom. Right. And if you, you weren't down for slashers or you thought those were just dumb and you didn't really find this plain entertainment value in them because they were, you know, too simple or stupid or recycled, I think it was between, you know, 1980 and 1990, like almost 70 movies just in the big four super killer franchises came out during that time as the home video boom. And it was like, look, we can just franchise this shit to death and make a ton of money off of it. So the two sort of biggest eras of horror in people's minds were a little bit off-putting if you were somebody who valued yourself a bit more of a sinista and you right. wanted to move a bit more substance. It's and like, it's, well, okay, now let me introduce you to 1977 and we can maybe work backwards from there to find out where the antecedents for these things that you're enjoying now come from. And it's true too, because I think that there is a dismissal even of the eras that you're referring to as, Absolutely. Fod as, fo as fodder because you know, esteemed critics like Leonard Maltin and, and Roger Ebert, who held kind of sway over public consciousness for a long time. Ebert used to call slasher movies dead teenager movies. Yeah, yeah. And, and that to him was like as much of a, a write-off as anything else, despite the fact- David Edelstein, New York Magazine's own David Edelstein, is the critic who coined torture porn. And it's a term that I try to stay away from myself personally, and I call it torture tourism, because right. I think there's a stigmatization there of like that there wasn't any value when- I think if you if you enjoy the kind of ultraviolence, there's certainly a value in it there, text like on the surface. But then also, if you look at the circumstances culturally and globally that gave rise to ultraviolence like that, that's what's really fascinating. And to toss it off as just violence for the sake of it, sometimes it was, but not all the time. And the the cultural circumstances that gave rise to it certainly were not frivolous. One hundred percent. Anytime the the air quotes torture porn era comes up and people are dismissive of it, it's not my favorite subgenre by any means. But I always point out, I'm like, you have to understand that this this came out in a post 9-11 George Bush presidency when we're literally watching the news in Abu Ghraib and these torture situations are in front of us all the time. Horror is always informed by what our current events are. And when you reveal that to people and they then discover, oh, wait, maybe there is more to this. You don't have to like it, but you can contextualize it. Uh, well, and, too, that, and, you can, and then you can point directly to and you can be like, yeah, the last time we really saw violence pushed pushed forward in this such a raw raw grisly way was really the end of the 1970s when we're coming out of the vietnam era and we're getting movies like last house on the left and texas chainsaw massacre and i will say still the first texas chainsaw massacre is one of the hardest movies for me to get through even now because the violence is so stark and awful and gross looking but right. it, it's actually more disturbing to me than i think any of the other movies that came that came in that franchise and, and a lot of movies modern movies that are made now and be, when you point from like oh here's the torture era in this post 9-11 world and say look at how that echoes the post-vietnam era and the cultural jadedness that we in the, the the emotional cultural jadedness that we had at the time and also scrutinizing a government and a society that would enable the atrocities that took place in this endless horrifying war. So it, it's, there's so much there and that immediately pulls the past into the present. It's like, see, it's not just now, it's not just current, like it's always been. Absolutely. And then I think, you know, something that you struck on that I've always been fascinated by is how this of all genres gets hit with a label that's usually superficial. Like, 
what people think of when they think of the phrase horror in a general, more mainstream way is exactly what you said, the blood flood, the gore, when in fact, that's usually such a small subsection. And so then I'll have people, as I'm sure you have as well, say, well, I don't like horror movies. And I always, I always tell them, well, I, I, I can categorically, categorically tell you that's not true. Because what will happen is we'll now start talking about horror movies. And then it will be like, well, I don't like horror movies. Oh, but I like Silence of the Lambs. I'm like, that's a horror movie. Or, or, or I like this. And it's, you know, it's, it's not just viscera that makes a horror film. But I think the public labeling of it as such has, has dissuaded some people from realizing the power and impact of a genre because they have been culturally led to dismiss it. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I think too, there, I've, been a, I've been revisiting right now, I, I've been working on something, so I've been revisiting that incredible turn of the millennium era of horror which is such, it's an incredible time that we'll just, we'll never get back to that level of excess again. Just financially, even before these pandemic times when we're gonna have to reconsider how Hollywood works a lot. Yeah. So much money was going into so many movies that were, you know, a lot of them remakes at the time. And there was the, you had this wave of Scream, and I know what you did last summer, really catalyzed this sort of like WB TV ready hot young stars put into a series of sort of slasher scenarios. So you had these like high-ish, high-ish profile ensemble casts and the sort of frivolousness of the late 90s with uh, incredible serial killer movies like Valentine and Urban Legends, like just pure fun. And then you have that era of excess running economically right into September 11th. So you have this, era of sort of overdoing like a horror being extra in every possible capacity and like the mid-budget movie had not yet died right. so you have the fun of the 90s crashing the fun and the bigness of the 90s crashing in to the september 11th attacks which gave rise to this nihilism in the genre so then you had the remake boom coming through where it was like well you know what works is really hot casts you know what's really selling is violence and you know what we're going to do is kind of spend a lot of money on big set pieces to make studio horror pictures so you have these kind of almost extravagant by today's by today's measures movies like house of wax and insane. the yeah. insane the, the set pieces in these movies are incredible and while they may not have been about much unless you start talking about the cultural context around them, while they may not have been about much and there's something beautiful about that, they are representative of a time when the genre was able to get more resources and was considered this big mainstream bet that you can make as a studio, then we're going to see at such a proliferate level again. Because now, and like, Blumhouse is obviously churning out genre stuff at a high clip, but we know, like, the, the very stark, like, budget caps on those things. And I'm in support of that model. I think it's great to be able to be pushed to be creative with fewer resources instead of having to bank on a bigger budget. But like House of Wax, any of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, 13 Ghosts, The House on Haunted Hill, these movies got resources to create sets on a level of like William Castle. And that is just an incredible artifact of time that I wish we would, we would respect more, even if I understand why, credibility-wise, these are never going to be the movies for the people who want to see more of The Witch or something from A24. Right. But what's interesting about it is, I mean, we can all agree that that was born out of the success of Scream because at, yeah. it was in an era where people had thought horror was dead and here comes Wes and, and Kevin and they make this movie 
that then reboots everything. And I, one thing I think is really important about Scream that does not get discussed enough, because obviously this is a movie that is talked about and, de and deified and celebrated. And, you know, you go online and mention it and they're like, that's the only movie <laughs> that some horror fans want to talk about. And that's great. Like any movie that is your baptism into the genre, I'm cool with. Right. But the one thing that I think gets left out of the discussion is that Scream, though it it changed the genre fundamentally, mm -hmm. Scream is not an island unto itself. Scream had to be built upon 20 years of what we thought we knew about horror. Exactly. And it's sort of like, and that's why I think it's both a masterpiece, but it's also like a, a cultural turning point that is the culmination of everything that came before, even if it was movies the mainstream was ignoring. All it took was a clever mind to take that content, shove it in front of the public in a, pal a palatable way, and all of a sudden we had a new horror boom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, it's, and it, I, I find like, I, this is, and this is just an interjection, but like, I stand by my own personal theory that the foundational movie for like the sexy ensemble horror boom was Flatliners. I buy that. I think, yeah. I think, I think like the, you look at the profile of that cast and it's fucking crazy. And like the style that Joel Schumacher brought to what was essentially kind of like a teen screams movie with that kind of ensemble cast. Like I watch that movie now and I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is before we knew how to make this at a mass produced level, like scream, like in which scream would catalyze that, that nineties teen scream wave that would come after it. But that movie to me is such an antecedent that does not get enough respect for the what it gave us in terms of like I would say things like Jawbreaker like I right. would say obviously I know what you did in Scream and Urban Legends and Valentine like that was the archetype right there was that movie that movie scared the shit out of me when I was a kid that's like one of the few movies that like shook me when I was young that whole <laughs> that whole like creepy ghost kid that's stocking key for Sutherland like that was the terror of my youth like, I, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it also I think it also created that gorgeous stylistic palette that we did see in the really expensive movies in the in the early early to mid 2000s where everything was just really saturated and Joel Schumacher the pioneer, the pioneer of bisexual lighting that he is like we you know we don't we don't get to lavish in set pieces like that anymore and i truly i truly rue the the loss of those things so Jordan, unless we, you're like fucking Guillermo del Toro, so yeah. Well, I mean, and what I love about Guillermo del Toro, uh, it, 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 this is my own interjection, and then I'll move on to the next. Segment. <laughs> but uh, what I love about Guillermo del Toro is he has become such a, a celebrated auteur for making movies that are truly just his love letters to other things that he likes. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I, I mean, Crimson Peak doesn't exist without gothic novels and dark shadows. Mm -hmm. uh, the Shape of Water he made because he was denied the rights to Creature from the Black Lagoon. He's as big of a fan of any of this as, as we are. And so it's sort of like really cool to see someone playing in a sandbox and have the ability to build those worlds the way he does. Yeah, I that I I and problematic in his uh, various ways that he is. I, I I love Quentin Tarantino's films dearly, and the what those two men do to honor cinema in in their own original works is it, it, it's it's they're truly movies that make you want to watch movies because of how much cinema is just bleeding through every very considered frame of what they make. No, I agree. And it's, I think too, if, if someone, uh, someone's work is such an homage to cinema and cinema history, if you watch Kill Bill and it urges you to watch Enter the Dragon because yeah. you're just curious, 
or you know you you see crimson peak and you're like maybe i'll watch dark shadows on Am- the, the series yeah. not the tim burton movie the series yeah uh but I, I think that then it opens the doors. I remember having this discussion when Twilight came out and how many people were really kind of upset about it. And my thing was like, look, for me, it's this. If some kid reads Twilight and is interested enough in vampires to go pick up Dracula or to watch The Lost Boys. yeah, And Rice. Yeah. Then it did its job. We all had our gateways in. Yeah. And with that segue, I, we've been talking all about the kind of cultural impact and you know your your baptism by Hellraiser, but let, let's talk a little more about you and your origins. Uh, you know, you were clearly always interested in film by your own confession. Uh, you didn't really get into the analysis of it till college, but were you all, were you always interested in writing? Was that always your career path, like, or something that you wanted to do? I knew uh, I knew exactly when I wanted to pursue uh, journalism. I I movies were always my favorite thing, and it was my fifteenth birthday. And I was coming home to, I was walking from the movie theater with my best friend at the time, Christine, walking from movie theater where I had just seen Tomb Raider, Angelina Jolie's Tomb Raider, because Angelina Jolie at that moment was the love of my life and the, <laughs> the person who introduced me to the concept of obsession, really. And um, walked home to grandpa's house, summer, I'm a June baby, summertime, get to my grandpa's. He does not subscribe to Rolling Stone magazine. But somebody, like, it had just been a mistake in the mail. The covers, cover story of Angelina Jolie for in association with the Tomb Raider release was that Rolling Stone was on his dining room table. And it's that gorgeous, I mean, thank God for the late 90s, early 2000s, the era of David LaChapelle. And it was that gorgeous David LaChapelle photo of her in like all white linen laying on long, bl- long green blades of grass. The cover line said, blood sugar, sex, magic. And she's like, you know, furtively pulling down her bottom lip with her thumb. And I picked it up. I was like, Grandpa, can this be my birthday present? Can I keep this? And he's like, yeah, I don't even know why I have it. <laughs> and I read that profile and was like, this is what, th- I, this is what I want to do. I want to talk to the people who make the things I love. I, I want to be a part of the movies and this is the way that I know I can do it. And I also want to put myself in a position to be face-to-face with Angelina Jolie one day. Has not happened yet. Will happen surely at some point. And that was, that focused me forward on my entire, like from that moment, it was like, oh, I'm going to pursue journalism. I'm going to go to a college where I can get a journalism degree. I want to work at Rolling Stone. I got an internship there. I realized I wanted to come back to the West Coast. I ended up at Wired and then went along the way at Wired. I realized that Vulture was really going to be, I think, the right home for me. And then I moved to LA. I got a job at Vulture. So yeah, it was Angelina Jolie has brought me to this point where I am today. Oh, what like this the patron saint. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, absolutely. I did not know you interned at Rolling Stone. That's exciting. I, I did yeah, it was uh the the I was living where I'm from in Oregon at the time. I had my summer job sweeping out the local veterinary office. I had sent in an application for an internship. This was 2008. And summer job uh I had gotten an internship at Willamette Weekly, the, the sort of biggest alt weekly, alt weekly at the time in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I checked my email while I was like sweeping around at, their, at the end of the night. And I had an email back from the sort of intern handler at Rolling Stone who was like, uh, you know, we love the application. We'd love to talk to you. Can you come into the office next week in Manhattan? And I had lied <laughs> on my application and said I was living in an apartment in Queens where a friend of mine did because I knew if they 
wanted to talk about applicants, the person a subway stop away was far more likely to get consideration than somebody they had to coordinate with across the country. Right. So I wrote back to her and was like, absolutely. Uh, next Wednesday sounds great. And then I called my grandma and was like, grandma, I need money for a last minute plane ticket to New York City. And uh, got the internship. Uh, during the application, I cried in front of Peter Travers because he was such a big deal to me at the time and they introduced him to me. And I was told halfway through the internship when I was sticking around one evening for a closing night for like a press night, um, they were like, you know, you don't have to always be here. Like you can, you can go, like, we're not, we're not paying you. So like, we're not asking you to stay. And I was like, this is what I came here for. Like, this right. is, this is why I'm in New York. Like I'm going to be here. I'm going to put in as many hours here as I can. And they were like, well, that's why you got the internship because you, you cared more than anybody else. You clearly wanted it more than anybody else. And I was well, that's going to be my, holly, my, my hallmark, my calling card for the rest of my life is like, no one questioned her commitment, Jordan Cruciola. I love that. I mean, it, unlike your grandpa, I was subscribed to Rolling Stone. When I was a <laughs> so I when, was after that. When I was a teen, it was back when it was still an oversized magazine. So it was like huge. Amazing. And uh, I, I grew up in a household where my parents were really, really into rock and roll, my mom specifically. And, you know, Rolling Stone was the Bible for that. So, but in addition to like being interested in the rock stars of the day, I, I I must have read like one of Hunter S. Thompson's books or something and how right. and, and how he had been doing, you know, election coverage during the Nixon years and Rolling Stone became this bastion of the resistance. Yeah. Yeah. And of, and of course, like, you know, little did we know that how much more we needed to resist like to come. But I thought there was something super punk rock and badass about it. And I stayed I stayed with it for many, many years. So I think I I had that uh, I had that magazine issue that you're talking about because i'm sure it just came in the mail during that time so oh yeah and i i still keep a whenever if angelina jolie has a cover story of something and i particularly love the cover photograph i still acquire the running stack of angelina jolie cover story magazines that lives in my room currently and god i would i would love to have my original i'm i would love to see if i still have that somewhere if my mom has saved it buried that original blood sugar sex magic cover because that it, it actually changed my life so here's the question you know if angelina jolie is is kind of part of the gateway path here you have a great affinity for her mm -hmm. what is to you the definitive angelina jolie performance gia Gia, oh my God, such a good one! Not the one I was expecting you to to roll out, but that's a. I it's it is it is one of those movies that's so affecting, I I can't actually watch it. Like I can't I will if I start watching it I will get sucked in and I cannot turn it off. So therefore I, I cannot let myself start watching it. It is, that was really where I because I'd always loved movies and it was that was sort of the the jumping off point of of something a love going further and becoming deeper realizing what. A movie was capable of doing as far as how deeply it could affect you realizing the power of a performance and realizing how much you could how much the power of infatuation could sort of take you over from this like distance perspective of being a fan and 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 someone who adores you know someone who they don't know and they're not going to meet it just unlocks so much the idea of star power the power of that magnetism the power of stories to fucking change you at your core and also just like the, the most harrowing, the most harrowing narrative, like drama th theme that a movie could um, work in to affect me is um, the drama of the AIDS crisis. Mm. Nothing will devastate me more. And between Gia and the HBO, both, both HBO movies, Gia and the, and the band played on, two movies that were so formative in like 
developing me as an empathetic person. I, I just like can't overstate them enough. Well, in both of these movies, uh, certainly are are queer movies too. Oh, yep. Yeah. Yep. And so I'm interested in that. Realize until later why that was so resonant with me, but obviously it would be as a like future realized queer individual. You know, and I'm, I'm really interested in these kind of benchmarks because a lot of people happen into these things uh, by they see one thing that leads them to the pivotal thing. But in, in these moments that you're referring to, these movies all already speak to something that's already so p- pivotal to you. And we, this goes all the way back to your interest in horror with Hellraiser being the first movie that, that you see in the horror space. I mean, few films carry such a stamp of queerness is Clive Barker's Hellraiser. And, you know, and people love to remark upon, like, all the fetish, uh, you know, iconography in the film, but I think the film is queer from Jump. When we see Frank at the beginning of Hellraiser, that camera is making love to that man. Like, he's obsessively, like, uh, there's a whole queerness to it. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure, like you said, you didn't recognize that then, but, like, looking back on it now, was that part of the allure? If it had been something else, would it have worked as much? No, and I'm sure it, I'm sure that it was. I'm sure that it was part of that. Because when I look back at something where, like, I was a little older, when it hit in the formative years, something like Gia and something, and when I, I, I saw And the Band played on, I think it was my sophomore year in health class, and we had a substitute teacher, and he wanted to phone it in for the day, so he put this movie on for us. And all the other students were dicking around, and I was like, this is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And I was just a wreck in my chair. and. I know that like those things were so impactful to me and seeing, identifying the way characters were allowed to relate to one another in their queerness absolutely mattered to me. Like the one of the, one of the, if not the central reason why Gia is so affecting to me, it was, that was, that's one of the first times I can really remember, if not the first time I can really remember registering a romance between women on screen that was meant to be so passionate, that was meant to be unchecked and unrestrained. And it didn't, it didn't flame out into, you know, in the way that lesbian movies so often, often tragically end. It didn't flame out because it was a forbidden romance. It flamed out because Gia Marie Karanji was a heroin addict. Like it wasn't the man that was stopping them from being in love. It was the reality of Gia's addiction. And to watch it be like, bodies and be so beautiful and be together like that queer love stories are more resonant and effective to me in at every turn i've i've never been as moved by a straight romance on screen literally ever even as i value them even if ryan and marissa from the oc is is something i've never recovered from those two not working out i will i will never react as strongly to a straight romance on screen as i as i will a queer one and that started right there. And right so there. to watch this movie in Hellraiser being so young and to have an intrigue response to something that was so abhorrent and so monstrous and to have a, a tell me more and to want to see more of those fetish objects in the Cenobites and to, and to see the fetishization, the eye of, of you know, Cl- Clive Barker's queer eye that he put onto the opening frames of that film, like, I know I internalized that stuff. And I know that's why these things really matter to me because they super matter to me now. So it just feels intuitive. It doesn't feel like retconning history. It just feels intuitive that before I had the tools and language to process these things, they would have been imprinting on my mind for very specific and vivid reasons. 
Well, what's interesting too with Hellraiser is that we, it's it's sort of lost to time because there were so many sequels and Pinhead became part of the pop culture lexicon like Freddy or Jason. But those first two movies, especially, it's it's really Pinhead's not an antagonist. He is a party that yeah. leads you to your desire that you specifically asked for. And what does that mean? And I think what was really cleverly handled in the first film is it's sort of all about the machinations of, of what you choose to show and what you choose to hide and what you really want. Mm-hmm. And that's the queerness of that movie, despite being made by the preeminent like gay male horror author yeah. of, of that time and possibly ever. Yeah. The movie is really all about the, the, the way we torture ourselves to get the things that we truly want and, and truly are. And um, it's interesting because before we went on the air, you and I were talking about Hellraiser uh, and I was saying how much I love Claire Higgins in these movies. Oh, God, yeah. Especially in part two, because she's really vamping for the rafters. I mean, it's truly great. Like, I, let, I'll just take a second to say it's truly wonderful how much I can love both Ashley Lawrence and Claire Higgins in these movies and be like, wow, they really stacked the deck with these women. Like, they two did. iconic performances performances doing the exact opposite things in both of these movies just incredible bless them both oh yeah i i adore ashley ashley lawrence and i think that her work in 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 these is is wonderful too she brings the emotional pathos and and i think that then such a they're such perfect foils for one another they're such perfect foils for one another yeah and i i think that i was saying to you one of the things that i rewatched hellraiser 2 it really strikes me once uh julia uh claire higgins changes into her, her evening gown and earrings <laughs> there's there's something like so delicious like she's she's like it, it, camp it's camp i i mean I, it's it's persona drag in a way it's like you know she's strutting down the runway of hell and you believe it and you want to buy and you believe there's no place else she'd rather be oh yeah this she, is her essential nature she's not like She's not afraid of these circumstances. She's where she belongs. And I think that's one thing, and we talked about this uh, before we went on, that I do think is left out in like our queer adulation of Hellraiser. So much attention gets put onto Pinhead, but it is Ashley and Claire whose performances really elevate those movies. And truly, I think Claire Higgins' Julia is not only a great villain of horror that we don't talk about enough, but like kind of a great queer icon. Well, yeah, and she is, I mean, and there seems so, it is such an archetypal performance in the, an archetypal role in that way that because, in the way that because queer folks, and specifically queer men, have been given so few of their own idols in this space, and so there is this big transference between particularly white gay men onto, like, the divas, you know, Kate Blanchett, queer icon, like that kind of thing. Her role is so much dripping with that figure that I feel like so many of my queer male friends attach onto as like the surrogates for themselves or the queens they choose to worship, you know, serving face, serving fierceness, you know, all the ways in which we use those vernacular terms now. She is such a perfect foundational example of that like queen bitch role that we love so much that we love so much especially to adore in like gift form and on the internet like that claire higgins is that in these movies she's incredible 
She truly is. And, you know, we're talking about all of the things, the, the fetish iconography, the, the search for self, the, 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 the validation of desire, mm-hmm. the, the using a fierce woman as an avatar for your own, you know, lack of representation. These are all things that are present in Hellraiser. And one of the last pieces that I saw, most, one of the most recent pieces that you've done for Vulture was reporting on the news of the, the remake. Yeah. And uh, I'm heading into this discussion with the caveat that uh, I think that David Bruckner, who is uh, going to be the director of the remake, is a brilliant filmmaker and, and, and someone that I truly respect and admire. And he's a great storyteller. And I'm, I am very excited to see what he does with this. I, I, I met him not too long ago at a party. And on top of it all, he was a very lovely man and delightful to chat with. I only in my limited interactions with him as a human being and in my long interactions at this point with him as a filmmaker, great work. Yeah, I'm I I am I'm a huge fan. I'm excited I'm excited for what he's going to do. But I think that you and I as you said earlier, we are both online, extremely online. Yeah. And and we know that sometimes when people have internalized and and taken these things that exist in pop culture and made them personal, mm-hmm. there will be a discussion. And because Clive Barker is so ultra and so queer and his work is so ultra and so queer, is something going to be lost by not having a queer voice? And it's, is that a pro or a con? And I, and that is, you know, I, I feel very open-minded to what this team of filmmakers will deliver for, um, for Hellraiser in terms of it being a quality film, in terms of it being imaginative, you know, there's such an incredible palette canvas on which to paint with something like colors or to make something vivid and evocative. I believe that David Bruckner can deliver on all those things. I, since I think what was his first movie in 2007, The Signal, I really enjoyed The Signal. And then I think the last he's got, or what was the one that got rave reviews and got a huge buyout of Sundance? What was that? Was it The Ritual? The the Ritual was the Netflix movie, which I loved. That came out like two years ago that I was one of, I listed that on my, like, it was either 2017 or 2018, like, horror mo- best horror movies you may have missed, that was one of my movies on that list. I liked it so much, and I thought it did such a great job conveying a tenderness to male friendships and an all-male screen dynamic that we don't normally get to see, actually, um, in horror that much at all, that right. I thought was done really delicately, and it made me feel really invested in these characters in a way that I will absolutely admittedly say I am predisposed to not investing in male characters readily on screen because I find them all to be guilty until proven innocent. But I was rooting for everybody in David Barkner's movie. And so, yes, I'm with this guy as a filmmaker. I'm with you too. Yes, absolutely. And yet it still makes me sad to know that there is, um, unless I, you know, there's an identification that I'm just not aware of, that of the four men who were announced to write, direct, and produce this movie, none of them are queer folks because there is something that will inevitably be lost. And and in the way that, it's interesting because there was a reaction to when Hellraiser was announced and you got the varying chorus of, ugh, another remake, there's nothing original, this is so stupid. And then the people being like, hey, keep an open mind. Like, you don't know until the movie's out. Like, this could be really good. Trust David Bruckner, like trust the filmmakers. You know, that the keep an open mind, wait and see approach. Right. But I wasn't seeing hardly anything at all from the people who like to consider themselves informed film fans saying, gosh, it's really regrettable that there won't be a prevailing queer voice shaping this something that is so fundamentally fucking queer from one of the most 
visible gay creatives in genre of all time. And in the way that you see people so often step up and be like, like with Candyman coming out, I've seen a lot of like, you know, I'm pissed that people don't put Nia DaCosta's name in front of this movie more often because she's directing it with Jordan Peele producing and writing. But I've seen plenty of people be like, oh, well, you know, you can't, you can't tell the story of the story of Candyman without like a, a acknowledging like the creator of the source material like this is this is a clive barker story we need to you know we need to keep you know keep his name front and center we need to respect the master it's like so that's okay and we're gonna shout that out in the case of Candyman. sure but in the case of hellraiser this formatively queer piece of cinema we're not going to talk about how like well where's clive barker and all this why isn't he being credited why isn't he being brought in as an advisor i can't believe this disrespect for the master clive barker it's like does it matter to you as much when it's something that's super fucking gay well that's it i'm, I'm wondering is it because they feel okay speaking over black voices but they also are definitely fine with erasing gay voices is that yeah like what what, what is that like right. i is it is it a it is is it a conscious deprioritization of the queerness of this work? It is a is it a proliferate misunderstanding of the fundamental queerness of this work by predominantly straight writers who are talking about these things who may not have ever had conversations about Hellraiser as right. being a queer work of art? Is either of those alternatives better? Is the selective is the selective non-acknowledgement of how foundationally queer this is and the lack of queer creatives involved in the reboot, is that worse than a malicious excising? Is ignorance or malice worse in this case, as far as the chattering class goes? This is right. beside, this is adjacent to David Bruckner. He's the creative and all this. But I'm talking about the people who talk about this movie who, can, who like to position themselves as the informed class that are bringing up the narrative topics that really need to be acknowledged, that are being overlooked by the mainstream. Right. Well. Where's your acknowledgement of this very fundamental aspect of this film? And even if David Bruckner makes an objectively great movie, there is something innate to, to the sensibility of a queer person and how they will frame this source material, which they've said they're going to be loyal to, quote, loyal to, but they will sort of evolve the story. Well, are you going to evolve the power and the, of its beating heart out of it? Like, are we going to miss that part? And is this just going to be a cool movie? Are we gonna are we gonna miss the subtext? Are we gonna miss the heart of it? Are we gonna miss the implications of it for for a movie that is otherwise just like super well done and and yeah. like really entertaining to watch? Well, like I said, I'm excited to see what he does, but I do think it it's a valid question. And I think it also leads to another discussion that happens a lot. And it's it's definitely something we won't solve or fully unpack in one conversation. Right. But I also think that like it, it leads us to the gates of can a non-queer filmmaker make a queer film. Mm -hmm. And I think that it, there's a lot there. Yeah. But I do think that, yes, the answer is they can, but I do think that, I think that nuance and, and a lot of understanding has to go into it. And, and times have changed in, in how we handle material as opposed to how we used to. I, if, if listeners know, and I've said this before, it's not the first time I've said it, but I always like to point out that someone who I think is a great queer filmmaker who is not actually queer is Brian De Palma. Mm -hmm. um, because Brian De Palma's uh, oeuvre, you know, Carrie is one of the most frequently cited films for queer people as, as, uh, as a film that we, we project onto. Speaking of Carrie as an avatar, as someone who's ostracized and marginalized and bullied, and how a lot of like young queer people associate with her struggle. 
and, and but beyond that, I mean, you look at the phantasmagoria of Phantom of the Paradise, how it's this over the top, super gay kind of rock musical. Absolutely, yeah. Even though, I mean, it, it, Dress to Kill has a lot of trans problems yeah. in terms of representation. It, it was a movie where he was trying to explore ideas of, of identity before anyone else was in, in that way. There is, even when you look at his more, air quotes, masculine movies, something like Scarface, mm-hmm. the way Pacino plays that character is so over the top, it feels like an indictment of toxic masculinity, not in a, a celebration of it. It's like... Mm-hmm mean male drag more than anything and so right, and I, like, like, I i i think there's 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 a few more sacred spaces for people where people should be telling their own stories than the topic of rape revenge films right and the renaissance that we've seen of that subgenre over the past handful of years with i know she bristles at this classification but jennifer kent with the nightingale coralie farge with the movie revenge um cold hell mfa like these movies cold hell was i'm pretty sure directed by man but mfa like these movies take the most right for exploitative premise of rape revenge and make them into beautiful art where you actually feel like the feminine perspective is being valued and exalted and used for the sake of narrative poignancy not to be you know exploited for for physical like prurient reasons or because we just like seeing women scream and that's more fun but absolutely in that class of the renaissance of the subgenre i would put the perfection one of my favorite movies of ever that richard shepherd directed so deftly and in, did such a i thought a um, hot job imagining queer desire in this movie between logan browning and allison williams characters making it a tender love story in the midst of some of the most fucked up action we've seen in a movie in a really long time but also like it respected the women that were involved it made them active parts of the creative process and it made something that was salacious and that was fun and was sexy but let it be dirty while being somehow empowering he walked an incredible tightrope in bringing that to life. And so I absolutely think people can tell stories that are outside of their own personal experience. Look what Brad Elmore did with Bit, which I'm, you know, we're all still waiting for the world to see. Yes. Trans, lesbian, intersectional, feminist vampire story that he made. And I've spoken to Brad about this and he took so seriously the process of researching this. He took so seriously the process of not making interchangeable characters, but writing characters that were specific to the identity of the who they were meant to be. Like, right. you know, he wrote one character in this movie is, is a Black woman who is from the Bay Area. That is her character's origin story. And he wrote that with the very specific intention for that not to be, you know, slotted in like, oh, well, what if we cast like an Asian American woman? It's like, no, that would be an entirely culturally specific different set of things about this character. And right. I can't just interchangeably put another person of color in there because this person is very intentionally meant to be this thing. Right. You have to promote, you have to approach your story with that kind of intention, deliberation, and, and respect. Yes, then you can. And hey, that could be what happens with this movie. But I think it is so, with, with the Hellraiser reboot, but I think that's why it is worth having these conversations ahead of time. Because if in 100%. any way... If in any way it can come to the ears of the people working on this movie that there are these considerations and these sensitivities, that doesn't mean they have to sap the power out of their movie or they have to suddenly be afraid in what they're making. But I hope that they can see it as an opportunity to be a texture to their film that maybe they've thought about before, but maybe they haven't and realize that they can put something 
so beautiful and nuanced into a story that maybe was already going to already be really cool, but can, can then be enriched by these themes that are not native to their experience. So I, I, it is, it is important to talk about these things with an open mind for these sense of like, we're both excited to see this movie, but it is absolutely worth, and hey, if we're going to exploit the fact that we've come so far, then we should. We should absolutely be using our platforms to yell and get worked up about this stuff ahead of time, yeah. because if in any way it can affect the bar of progress being moved up higher, then yes, that is our responsibility as people who love these movies. Well, I think you raise a good point too. It's it's also, I think, both the the duty and and excitement as an artist to discover to discover that the art you're working on can have more layers like why would you not when you're making something if something is brought to your attention rather than shy away from it explore what that means and i think that that would be exciting so i mean i i go in cautiously optimistic and i'm excited to see what what happens and i think that you know pushing this discussion is good because I think as an artist, I would want to hear it too. So well, and that's that's the that is so much the joy of of what I do in my job, and it is one of the things that I I put forward as much as I can. Like my responsibility as somebody who wants to be writing about genre and horror as much as possible is to elucidate the aspects of these conversations that are perhaps beneath the surface, that are the ones that that don't necessarily get to quick get touched on in a quick write up post about a trailer. Vulture, one of our strengths, you know, I think we do this better than anybody is we take very specific things and we go very deep on them in a way that appeals to a broad audience of people as opposed, as, as opposed to a small moment, which is important, but we're a big mainstream publication. Right. And there's so much to unpack with horror and every opportunity that I get to do that is a learning experience. Every opportunity that I get to talk to somebody new to hear their point of view on their art and, and art that influenced them, that they, that, you know, that they hope to have influence on others, that is an incredible opportunity that we should be taking advantage of at every turn because it enriches us and we are able to, to hear more stories and hear more experiences, then we only get better at being who we are and doing what we do. So we all should be taking advantage of these opportunities. Exactly. Well, and, and speaking of enrichment, one of the things that I mentioned at the very top of the show, and you know, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about Hellraiser and sort of the offshoots of what that, that means. Right. But you did a really amazing piece. I think it was a year or two ago, uh, the 55 Essential Queer Horror Films. Yeah, I think that's the best thing I've ever done. I, I think it's the best thing I've ever done. I and love I, that so much. And let's talk a little bit about that because it was a really remarkable piece where you went through a timeline of cinema history and you went era by era and kind of handpicked things and cultural moments that were significant sort of to the backbone of the queer horror movement uh, which kind of leads us up to this moment now where queer horror is very much a huge discussion point. So talk to me about your process on that and, and what what led you to want to start the piece at all. And, and when you were doing it, what was the classification between this is a definitive and this is not? Because sometimes some movies are very obvious and some movies are very not. Yeah, so. and some movies are very not. It, it that was funny because it, it came around in like May of that was that wasn't last year it was the year before. So it was 2018. And we did it because Pride Month was coming up. And it was like, oh, hey, Jordan, uh, should we do like a, you know, like a list of like gay horror or something? And I was like, yeah, I can pull this list together. And it was going to be, I've done many long lists, many medium lists, and it was going to be just another sort of list of things, another list of titles. And it, it went from something being like, you know, 25 movies, you know, queer horror if you're interested, to being like this, well, what if we build it out more? And we structured this, like, you know, and this was working with who was at the time my, she was a staff writer with Vulture now, but she was movies editor at the time, Rachel Handler. 
And it became this, you know, well, why don't we build it out more? We can break it down into by decade and we can contextualize each decade, letting people know, you know, how the times themselves affected, um, you know, the sort of queer presence and messaging that, you know, exists in these movies and that was even allowed to exist at the time. And so then it became this big 55 movie list sort of and what I wanted it to be because you can read books about this stuff, not a ton, but there are plenty of texts you can get about queer horror, but it was like, there wasn't anything easily Googleable. And I wanted to make the best 30,000 foot view pass at queer horror that you could find on the internet. And thanks to the invaluable help of Professor Harry M. Benshoff, who wrote the book Monsters in the Closet, I, uh, I obviously had read his book, but then I got on the phone with him for an hour or two where I had this huge list and we went through decade by decade. And I asked him those questions. Like I asked him about movies that were in his book that, that weren't in his book. I told him movies I was going to put sort of in each decade. And we discussed like, you know, do you feel like there are more representative examples? Have I missed something? What do you think about this? And he was invaluable to that. And I also, I also read uh, the book New Queer Cinema as well, um, because that was that I feel like the 90s is where the genre obviously it is it has always been a fluid term horror but I feel like in the 90s we start really seeing more experimentation with the genre especially coming into the 2000s and now and what the um, you know term umbrella term horror can be so broad I think in the best possible way right and so things get things get more things get more indie there's more indie it's the boom of indie cinema then thing blinds are getting blurred you know auteurs coming up like Gus Van Zant sort of like pushing us to question what cinema is movies like watermelon woman you're getting to a more it seems like democratic way of making films and so that was that was really the the process of the piece was okay well let's make this a history lesson let's make this accessible let's make it like capsule oriented so people can just read little breakouts but let's make it let's make sure it has like the rigor of academia behind it too and it went from like casual list to like well I guess I'm gonna create what I consider to be like the definitive, again, broad 30,000 foot view, like walkthrough of queer horror that you can just Google search. And if you click, if you search queer horror, as far as I know, that is the first entry that comes up. And that was the point. Right. Because I wanted, if anybody even had an inclination about this, I wanted them to know, oh, look, there's a resource. I can find these movies. They're real. They do exist. And this isn't a hard thing for me to start looking into and for me to get into. I wanted it to feel like something people could dig into as much as they wanted as quickly as possible. Well, and it's such a great overview and you know 55 movies that's it's a it's a not just a, a crash course it's a primer it's a deep dive it's yeah. all of these things um and so i really urge people to go and find this piece uh and and kind of dig into it themselves because i think that's the best way to discover some movies but as we head out of the discussion of that i would ask is there a a movie from those 55 that by doing that article you discovered or you found it a, a new love for because of this work? I, I think one of the most exciting things to me on that whole list was The Hunger. Mm. And it's not, you know, it, it's, it's not really a deep cut if you're a fan of, if you're a person who likes movies. But the 80s were such... An incredible, I mean, what a, what a time for movies, what a time for practical effects, what a time for style and sexiness and coolness and the up against the insanity of the Reagan era culturally where everything was so, we had hair metal, everything was so big and hairsprayed and bright and cocaine and leather and yet it was 
like the rise of the James Dobson's America, the focus on the family America. Obviously, you know, the Hayes Code was around in the, you know, was implemented in the 1930s, and that was thanks to a bunch of, you know, asshole Catholic moms. But <laughs> there was this, the way that Reagan exists as this sort of deity figure to the conservative right, he was consecrated in this time when he was like this sort of like beacon, the shining city on the hill answer to the depravity of culture at the time. And I hadn't thought about the hunger in a long time when I made that list. And I rewatched it again just the other day. And I rewatched it again when I was making that list. It was like, oh my God, this movie is so cool. It's so efficient. It is like 90 minutes. David Bowie, Catherine Deneau, Susan Sarandon. It is so effective in such a short amount of time. And it is so sexy without being exploitative. And it is so cool without expending seemingly any effort at all. It is that you know, the characters interacting with each other, you, I feel like you believe so much in their love and their relationship, you know, between like Miriam and John. But at the same time, the style and the mise-en-scene of the movie communicates so much about what's happening. And the fact that it's Tony Scott, that right. was, was that like his first feature film? And then after he, what other Tony Scott movie looks like The Hunger? It was like he had to express this and get this out of his system. And then he never made anything like it again. And it's this crazy anomaly between like both of the Scott brothers. And it's, I think my favorite movie, taking into account everything Ridley has done of either of the Scott brothers. And it's just such a weird anomaly in that way, but is so indicative of the 80s and the struggle of the 80s where everything was big and explosive and AIDS was really fucking scary and there was a prevailing administration in office that basically didn't consider gay people to be human, which is why Ronald Reagan didn't say the word AIDS in a speech until four years, I think, after the first person died of it. Like, there is just so much going on that it's obviously awesome about this movie when you watch it and the amount of cultural value around it when you, when you look at it as it reflects and critiques the society, society that exists in, I just couldn't, I couldn't say enough about it. And, and one of my, I will say one of my favorite things to add to that list was um, What Keeps You Alive, the movie from, uh, I think it was 2017. I always forget if it was 2017 or 2018. Yeah, I'm a big Minahan, fan of that film as well. I love that movie. And Colin Minahan wrote it and directed it. And he did such a tremendous job. And he is such a jack of all trades. Um, he, cinematically, like, that, he is somebody who, like, I feel like you could never sit and talk to Colin about, like, the movie you want to make, because he'd be like, well, why don't you make your fucking movie? Like, he right. just, he does what needs to be done to make his films, and his, um, his partner and, and star in that, uh, Brittany Allen, is so good alongside Hannah Anderson, and one of the reasons I find that movie so satisfying and so exciting is because here's, here's this straight white gentleman, you know, this Canadian director, he made a wonderful, queer, psychosexual, romantic thriller. And as in, there's, systemic change doesn't happen unless you have the man working on your side, at least some of the time. Right. The fact that Richard Shepard could make the perfection so wonderful, the fact that Colin Minahan could do such a tremendous job handling what keeps you alive, that was titillating, that was scary, that was thrilling, that was a great action movie at points, that was really intense, but felt really substantial with these really great realized relationships that made the homosexuality of the characters at its core just the norm, not any kind of exception, not any kind of like narrative thing we needed to point out. It was just a queer context in which they existed, so there was no othering. 
So it didn't have like a problematic like lesbian killer because there wasn't anything problematic about being lesbian in the context of this, of this cinematic world. Right. And when you have these glimmers of people who are doing it right, who are not coming from that experience, but to, to write it well and to realize it well, it's like, oh, then this means we can all work together for the betterment of the, the, the genre and for film and for narrative going forward. Because if these guys can get on board and figure out the right things to do to do this correctly, well, then they can work with us together to, to in, enact progress. And we're not just alone in the margins trying to do it ourselves. That leads me to my final question kind of in this arena before we head off into the night. And it's kind of an impossible question because, uh, but I value your opinion and your take and your fight in this space so much. I'm just interested in your input. Uh, What has queer horror done right so far and what more do we need to do? I had a conversation with you I feel like along these lines, when we were at Comic-Con together last year in 2019, where, you know, you expressed very rightly that we haven't, we haven't come far enough. And we haven't, of course we haven't. The fight continues on. I would like to see, I feel like that spirit of the new queer cinema assert itself in our present day horror landscape in the sense that in the 1990s with with movies like you know my own private idaho and and watermelon woman these movies were queer not just in their subject matter but in their structure right they bucked against narrative convention and how they i mean gus van zandt's whole career bucks against narrative convention the idea that things have to adhere to a patriarchal heteronormative hero's journey to be marketable, to find their audience, to have an audience. I would like to see a sort of jarring of the system in, in that way. And, and our dear friend, Sam Weinman, the director, Sam Weinman, you know, asked me what my favorite sort of era of horror was. And I said, it's the current one because now you know, we've obviously come farther than we ever have. Like we are farther, we are farther now than we were in 1970 than we were in 1985. What I appreciate so much about now is the promise of progress actually being realized and permanently implemented in a way that obviously was a bit of vaporware in eras past because we're still fighting so much of the same fights today. And it feels like actually right now, the fights that we've been fighting forever can actually be advanced to the point of progress cemented in ways and means and practices and the way that we create and the people who are allowed through the door. And so what I would like to see right now is a final shrugging off of any sort of, like not necessarily desire to, because if you're a more assimilationist person and that is how you find comfort and that is how you want to express yourself, that's fine. Right. I would like to see a, final trashing of the need of assimilationist creative styles for queer folks to finally sort of dispel internalized homophobia that may end up on screen and in stories from queer filmmakers and let the sort of freakiness of the individual emerge as much as it wants to, the combativeness. Queerness doesn't have to be friendly. Queer people don't have to be grateful for a seat at the table. Queer people can be fucking pissed. Right. And, and that edge or activist spirit I would like to see considered as mainstream and welcome 
and justified and not something that has to be fought for, not something that has to be rationalized, but just sort of taken at its face value. Well, uh, here's, here's to hoping and here's to working towards that. Yeah. Here's to hoping that's what we've got. Now, I would be remiss having you on the show and not mention this before we leave. Um, one thing that you and I share in common, though your event was far cooler than mine, is we both hosted uh, event screenings of Jennifer's Body. Gosh. And you were <laughs> you hosted the Jennifer's Body screening for the 10th anniversary at Beyond Fest, and you had Karin Kusama and Megan Fox there. One of the best days of my whole life. And I know that this movie means so much to you. So could you just little uh, speak a little bit about that? Because I think that Jennifer's Body is an important entry in queer horror canon. It's so important. It's so important. And as somebody who I identify on the asexual spe spectrum, I identify as panromantic, great, asexual. Um, panromantic meaning you could be interested in any old person. Uh, asexual being the sort of knowable word there of like not asexual person, but the gray being the sort of caveat, being like, hey, it's a long life. I remain flexible and open-minded. Who knows what's coming down the road? But to my life, to, to this point in my life, practicing, I am an asexual person. I have never had sex with a body, a, a body. I, that's not, it's not a part of my experience. I've never desired to. So, but like, you know, hey, I uh, could be proven otherwise at some point along the line. So the gray. And there's the obvious queerness of, of Jennifer's body in the, the, the makeout between um, Jennifer and, and her best friend, Needy. And that was very hot. And I really appreciated that <laughs> a lot. And I remember like, that's, I think that kiss is like 52 or 59 seconds long. And I remember just crawling out of my chair when I saw it the first time in the theater. Cause you didn't see that coming if you went opening weekend and you just didn't know. Um, so that was thrilling. But what I fastened onto so much in that movie is the friendship, is the, the codependency between these two characters where the, it obviously advances to a romantic point with that kiss, but you, there is a, you know, it's that statement of sandbox love never dies. And as somebody who identifies on the asexual spectrum, but is very loving, is very affectionate, is very welcoming of love in my life and, and <clears throat> does enjoy physical displays of affection. I'm not an aromantic person. And the loves of my life are my friends. These are the great loves of my life. I am in love with these people. It is not, it is not inferior to the romantic love that people experience in their own lives who, who right. are romantic individuals. It is it is equal to that. It just manifests in a different way. And the sort of obsession that these two characters had with one another, the way that they needed one another, it was toxic, yes, but this is a genre movie. So things are going to be heightened and they're going to be extreme and being a teen girl is pretty wild. So that made sense. But the central love story in that movie is of Jennifer Check and Needy Lesnicki, Needy Les, um, and I valued that so much and it felt so real to me and it felt so true to me, this idea that this person, your companion, your other, didn't necessarily have to exist as the person you were going to end up with and get married because Needy has a great boyfriend. Chip is a great boyfriend and you want Needy to be with Chip, but you understand too that she needs Jennifer just as much as she needs Chip. And those two things don't have to get in the way of one another because they just satisfy different parts of a person's experience. And the setting those two relationships alongside one another and having at Jennifer, the importance of Jennifer and Needy's life, you know, kind of edge out Chip a little bit, that meant so much to me. And I still, you see more of that now with that prioritization of friendship 
in in narratives in, in a way that I, I don't think we're used to but like because and I, I I got the chance to interview Mackenzie Davis actually about um being a lesbian thirst icon not because <laughs> she herself was a lesbian but because the lesbians thirst after her um enthusiastically and I I got the chance to talk to her about this and she was like that's not how I identify I am so honored in any way to be a part of this conversation it's a, a community I support and I want them to know that like I I have their backs 100% and I was like well here's the thing about it I was like it doesn't have to be she was like, you know, I myself am not a lesbian. I was like, but see, that's the thing. It's not about you being queer or even necessarily that the characters that you've played outside of obviously like San Junipero have been queer. It is the fact that heteronormative standards dictate that our connections, our devotions to other people are arranged in this hierarchy that puts romantic and sexual relationships above platonic relationships. And therefore to make a platonic relationship, a friendship, something that is paramount let, let alone tantamount but paramount to romantic involvement that is in itself a queering of that relationship right. and with that comes a sort of intensity of connection where even though like needy and jennifer make out on that bed and you can tell from that scene that like they've been physical with each other before it doesn't mean that either of them has been lusting to make this relationship have a different complexion that it has throughout their lives. That's just an element of this friendship that does exist and that is normal for them and exists within their context. Again, an imbalanced toxic female friendship, but people can operate healthily with that kind of fluidity as long as they're mutually engaging in whatever way they align themselves sexually in terms of romance and affection it doesn't have to look one way to relate to somebody so intensely in your heart that they can sort of consume a disproportionate amount of you. And Jennifer's body conveys that so beautifully while being one of the most fun, outstanding, good time horror romps I've ever seen in my life. It's so clever, it's so witty, it's so fun, it's scary, it's sexy, it's cool. And I got to have all of that fun watching just the surface level experience of Jennifer's body while seeing myself in characters in a way that I can't think of I, I had ever at up to that point I was like oh my god I'm having my meal and I'm having dessert all at one time and I get to <laughs> I get to consume every bite of it I'm getting my nutrients I'm getting my sugar and I feel hugged at the same time it was glorious and getting the chance to talk to Karn and Megan in that context was absolutely a moment of my life of my life well, I'm so glad you got to do, and I can't think of a better person to have celebrated with them and uh, <laughs> and celebrated them because I think that this movie does have a resonance that, as as tends to happen with cult films, took a while for people to come around to. Yeah. But then there are those folks who saw it from the very beginning and knew. And I think that, like for artists, I think often about uh, I had I saw Josie and the Pussycats on opening weekend and nobody was there, and right, I loved it. Right, I, right. I loved it from the day that I saw it. And then 15 years later, they did an event here at the Ace Hotel where uh, the directors and all three Pussycats, so, you know, uh -huh. uh, Rachel Lee Cook, Tara Reid, and Rosario Dawson were all there, as well as uh, the band who played the music. And um, they had asked the directors about it. And they said, you know, uh, it's cool that the movie is being discovered 16 years later. And they said, unfortunately, we also wish it had been discovered 16 years ago. But I, 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 I think that it's like one of those that Jennifer's body has a similar thing because I've, I've had encounters uh, with Karen Kusama and I, I've talked to her briefly in the past about it. And there always was sort of a res uh, reticence because they got beat up by this movie. Absolutely. And to, I think. Have Until last year, Megan Fox didn't talk about this movie. 
like she had been acting it's not like she disappeared like she's done her own stuff it hasn't been like on the scale of transformers obviously but she had you know stayed acting in the 10 years since this movie had come out but she didn't do press around this movie every once in a while karen would contribute a comment to something or diablo would contribute to something regarding jennifer's body but it wasn't until last year and it wasn't until she realized that like oh people are asking me to talk about this because they really like it. They're not going to be like, hey, remember that shitty movie you made? Or like, tell us that time when that horrible thing happened to you. It was like, oh, you guys just want to celebrate this. And it was surprising to her. Like 10 10 years it took for her to realize that this movie had found its people and found its community. Like, what a relief to feel. But it's like, shit, I wish you guys had showed up a decade ago. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's gotta be bittersweet. It's like cool to know that you made something with, with impact. But also, it's sort of like, <laughs> why did we have to take the long way around? Well, it, and it, I will say, like, that whole experience was so wonderful. And something that Megan has never gotten the credit she's deserved for, despite the fact that it's very, very obvious and was in any profile you write of her at the time, when, you know, the big Megan Fox machine was in effect around between 2007, 2010. She's really eloquent. She's very well-spoken. She's very smart. And she's got a very good at sort of a working perspective on her life and sort of wanting to be able to take the sort of inventory of who she is and who she's been versus who she wants to be. And she's very self-aware too. And so to have her coming together with Karin and bring that eloquence to the table that I knew she could and to have Karin, who is so intelligent and tremendous to speak about with, with, about anything, let alone about film, and it was, it was such a, a nice, it was such a wonderful start to the event. When we got on the stage, my whole entire purpose for doing this was wanting to make it like a tent revival for these people and wanting them to feel honored as much as we knew we loved the movie and they felt and felt they should be should have been honored at the time when it came out. So I wanted to get everybody as just frothed up as possible when they came on the stage. And immediately when we started talking, it was very clear and, and Karin like started the conversation by being like, first of all, let's just establish that Megan is iconic in this film, that this is an iconic performance and an iconic role. And there was this protectiveness of Karin over her in that moment that just made me feel so happy about what was going to happen because it was all good. And it was, it was the tone of the conversation that I knew she would want to have about that movie and watching her sort of go like, mother bird and wrap a wing around Megan as soon as we got on that stage just made me so happy and it was like this is exactly why we're here (laughs) and I will say like it was I I cried before we went out on the stage because in the grand and gorgeous Egyptian theater where we were able to have the screening at Beyond Fest last year um there are these wings on either sides of where the seats are where you can see the screen uh but the rafters and stuff kind of block it so you have to sort of duck down a little bit um to to see the whole screen so we're we're waiting in this rafter along the left side of the seats and there's there's you know karen and megan are there and then there's like handlers and people and assistants so there's probably like 20 people back there total everybody is like kind of just like on their phones mostly or just like you know flipping through writing something down you know doing businessy things everybody except um there's one person crouched down watching the movie and i went i went and walked up in front of everybody because i wanted to watch the movie too and as I passed, I realized it was Megan. And she was just like crouched down on her heels, like so intently, like hands under her chin, watching the end of this movie 
with just this little smile on her face and she looked so pleased. I had to like bury my head in my hands not to start like audibly crying because it made me so <laughs> glad. Well, like people were cheering in the crowd. They're cheering at the big finish of this movie and she's listening to it happen and she's watching this. I know that it's something that she's not publicly aligned herself with in a really long time. And I was like, oh my God, if this is the first time you're watching people watch this movie the way you wanted them to, since it came out, like, I'm so happy right now. Like, I'm so, I want this for you. This is the day I wanted you to have. And it was just, it was everything. For that to be the thing that I saw before we went out on stage and really unpacked this movie together, it could not have been more perfect. And what a great and truly victorious note to wrap up on. Victorious. Um, it was, yeah, it was yeah. a triumphant event. Well, thank you so much, Jordan. Before you go, uh, what have you been watching in quarantine? Any movies you recommend? Or um, I have been talking about this online, but I will say it here. One of my favorite movies of the year, honestly, has been We Summon the Darkness. Okay. Uh, as, as large as theaters are closed and large-scale movies are getting pushed down the release calendar, there are still really good movies coming out on video on demand right on schedule because these are movies that we're going to get day and date releases, if not just be released to digital altogether. We can still watch those movies. We can still support those movies. If you have funds that you were going to put toward a, you know, a Black Widow, why not do three Black Widows and watch three movies on demand that right. absolutely deserve your time and your attention and your funds? So I would say that the horror comedy We Summon the Darkness with um, one of, I, perhaps my, my favorite Alexandra Daddario performance to date. Um, and I say that as a big fan of Texas Chainsaw 3D. I love Texas Chainsaw 3D. I love Texas Chainsaw 3D. She carried that movie with a fucking heroic and thankless performance. And, and also uh, one of the movies that has just tickled me most this year, another small one, is After Midnight. I, a, 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 a creature feature tender little love story as well that ended up being one of the most satisfying kind of breakup movies I've watched in memory with a finale that will truly knock you on your ass. So I would say those two after midnight and uh, we summon the darkness, I would encourage people to go out there and support those little films. Uh, two really great recommendations. Jordan, where can people find you? You can find me uh, online. My handle everywhere is Jorcru at J-O-R-C-R-U. And if you like disaster movies, you can also listen to me and my friend Amanda talk about them a lot on our podcast, Disaster Girls. We do it for <laughs> ourselves because we love them so, and it is a crowded podcast landscape. But if you've ever wanted to listen to anybody go long with a geophysicist about the movie San Andreas, boy, do we have that covered. I mean, I think that's that's all the cell you need. Why are, I get, <laughs> the second you click stop on this, you got to head over there. Come on. <laughs> uh, and listeners, please, you know, Jordan has written a, a great, really amazing number of articles about horror and horror history. Uh, you know, I mentioned the 55 essential queer horror film piece that she did. Also, the really expansive 100 greatest scares piece that she did. This was tremendous. Uh, and there, Yeah, I will just say it's, it's not like, Oh, the 100 Greatest Horror Movies, the 100 Scariest Horror Movies. It is the 100 most formative scares in the history of horror cinema, starting with 1896, uh, The Haunted Castle, George Millet's The Haunted Castle, and going clear up to, at the present at the time when it came out, with uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out and uh, Most Beautiful Island. Uh, the, essentially, the 100 scares that basically built the language of horror cinema as we understand it and speak it today. And I can't recommend that enough. That took dozens of people. Uh, we had 10 writers working on it, writing the final blurbs, but I consulted with so many academics who were instrumental to me getting that piece out. And it is a really, really interesting read. I encourage you to check it out, please. 
Well, yeah, so uh, please go and find find these pieces and many more. I also know that uh, if you follow Jordan on any of the, of the platforms that she just mentioned, she will post her new articles as they come. So so please keep your eyes open. Support this amazing and, and powerful voice in our community who I'm so grateful was here today. Thank, Thank you, you for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. This is all I am. Talking is the thing I'm best at. And I'm so grateful to have been given the opportunity to dig into all these things with you. Well, it was a true joy. Thank you so much. I'm Michael Vratti. This is Dead for Filth. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night, good luck, and stay home. Dead for Filth, the Renegade Edition, is a June Gloom production in association with Sister Hyde. Dead for Filth is created and hosted by Michael Verratti and produced by Drew Phillips.